Welcome to Subject to Power. I'm El Kemihira. Many of us don't examine why it is that we believe one person over the other. We trust our own judgment to suss out whether someone is telling the truth or is lying. My guest today, Deborah Turkheimer, has spent her whole career studying why we believe some and do not believe others, and why we care so much about some and so very little about others. As a former prosecutor and now professor of law, Deborah has written many groundbreaking papers on laws that govern violence against women, domestic violence, and sex crimes. And she wrote a book called Credible about this very subject. She looks at how cultural values shape how the law is written and executed, but also how our laws determine what we care about and who we care about. So maybe we can start by you just telling the story behind the story of Credible, like how you came to write the book. So I was a prosecutor in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. This was decades ago, but the kinds of cases that I handled involved domestic violence, child abuse, sexual violence. And so going back all the way to the late 90s, I was thinking about credibility and how essential it is in these kinds of cases, particularly how important it is to evaluate the strength of a case, but also how important it is to persuade a jury if the case ever gets to trial that this person ought to be believed. So I started writing about gender violence when I became an academic, and that was in 2002. And I have really been thinking about credibility ever since. I didn't necessarily realize that I was always thinking about credibility, but a lot of my work focuses on law reform, changing the laws, changing the way we enforce the laws, and lurking beneath those issues is always the question of credibility. So this is the sort of the seeds of the book comes from my effort over many, many years to think about a better response to gender violence and recognizing that that better response really hinges on our ability to transform the way we think about credibility. So I want to get into all of what the book lays out, and I love the kind of the shape of it. You have come up with kind of an all-encompassing term you call credibility complex. Can you explain what that means? The credibility complex is my name for the cluster of forces that shape the way we think about what to believe and who to blame and whether to care. And I'm sure we can talk more about each of those components of credibility, but the forces that I have in mind are for the most part culture and law. They are forces that we don't see but they are powerful and they absolutely influence our thinking on credibility, even if and even when we don't necessarily see it or appreciate it. And so my effort in this book is to really uncover those forces, to explain them, to describe them, to show 
how our thinking about credibility is informed by culture and by law, how our individual psychologies are shaped and formed by culture and law, and how in order to improve the way we evaluate credibility, we first have to see how we're being shaped and how, frankly, our judgments are being distorted by these powerful forces that comprise the credibility complex. You say that credibility is itself a form of power, which I find so interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a form of power that we don't often understand as a form of power. It's, you know, this thing that feels like it's um, neutral or objective, or that we're all kind of making these individualized determinations. But in fact, credibility assessments are patterned. We can look at the typical ways that credibility is meted out, and we can see that it is not only a form of power, but it's distributed along familiar axes of power. And so wherever we see hierarchies, wherever we see imbalances in our society, we are very likely to also see credibility distributed in those very same ways. We're likely to see people with power be conferred with credibility. And the opposite is also true. Those who are most marginalized, most vulnerable in our society, those who lack social power are least likely to be seen as credible individuals. Obviously, gender is kind of like the biggest divider here, especially when it comes to sexual crimes. So how does, if you can explain, like how women and men line up within the credibility complex? So I want to introduce another term that I use throughout the book, which is called credibility discounting. And it's, as you might expect from the name, it's the notion that our credibility judgments are often skewed in ways that are unfair. And they are based not on objective or neutral understandings of how the world operates, but in fact, they're based on misunderstandings, misconceptions, biases that work to the detriment of those who lack social power. And so the credibility complex is, in fact, a system that results in lots of credibility discounting of those who are more marginalized And on the flip side, credibility inflation of those in our society who tend to possess social power and have social authority. Sexual violence is really the focus of my book. But as I say, I spent many years prosecuting domestic violence, and those cases were much on my mind as well when I wrote the book. So before we dig into those cases, I think credibility discounting happens in our world a lot. And I introduced the term in part because I'm hoping that having a vocabulary and a lens through which to see these dynamics helps people to make some sense of something that maybe is hard to put a hand on. And so credibility discounting in the workplace, credibility discounting in the medical setting when someone is trying to get help for symptoms, credibility discounting within the context of intimate relationships credibility discounting in the educational setting. And again, want to return to the idea that wherever you see differences in power, power differentials, you're very likely to also see credibility discounting, credibility inflation. Now, 
When it comes to gender violence, the paradigm case, the case that is most common, involves a woman as the victim and a man as the perpetrator. And it so happens that gender is a hierarchy in our society. And there is an imbalance that tracks along gender lines. And so when a woman comes forward with an allegation against a man, it is very likely that that allegation will be discounted, that her credibility will be discounted. It doesn't happen in every case. I make no claim about every case. But again, I'm interested in patterns. I'm interested in the way things typically happen. And here where there is that imbalance in power, putting aside everything else, and we shouldn't, we should talk about class and race and dynamics within a workplace because all of that is really important too. But to focus for a moment on gender, I want to be very clear about that, that notion that gender is itself a hierarchy. And so this is something that we ought to be looking out for whenever you have that situation of a woman coming forward against a man. And then when she happens to be marginalized or vulnerable for other reasons, or when the man happens to be powerful and possess authority for other reasons, then that dynamic is exacerbated. When a, a woman comes forward with an allegation of abuse, you write that the widespread social impulse to discount credibility is at its apex. Mm -hmm. So for me, this is the paradigm case, as I said a few minutes ago, where a woman is coming forward against a powerful man and she's alleging some sort of abuse. And that is where credibility discounting is at its apex because so much is at stake. So much of sexual entitlement, sexual prerogatives, the maintenance of gender hierarchy, all of that is in play when this kind of allegation is made. And that's where not only the impulse to discount credibility, but the impulse to protect the abuser, not to disrupt the status quo, all of that is also really powerful. And when it you know comes together and it collides with mythology about women and mythology about men, we are very likely to see, and we do see credibility discounting as a matter of course. I'm glad you mentioned those mythologies because there are like these common, really powerful mythologies that a lot of us are familiar with, almost to the point where you think they shouldn't work anymore because we're so aware but they still, the same things get repeated. Yeah, I talk about the myth of the perfect victim and the myth of the monster abuser. And those are both really important. On the staying power, before I kind of get into the mythology itself, I want to say that I tried to write the book from the perspective of not wanting to pretend that this is about just bad apples or bad actors or individuals who are deviant in some way because they continue to hold these beliefs. But to make the case that this really is a cultural problem and a problem that is then baked in and reinforced by law, speaking to victims or survivors and hearing that some of this same mythology gets internalized makes you realize that this isn't just about people who want 
to hurt victims or who want to protect abusers, that so much of this, again, is because we are part of this ecosystem. We breathe the same air, we drink the same water. I don't want to say it's inescapable because it's not. We can become aware and we can absolutely do a lot to transcend these biases and to become more informed. But as a starting point, I want this to be a collective problem. I want us all to own it. On the mythology itself, um, let's talk about the perfect victim. We need to backtrack for a minute and think about what I call the stranger rape paradigm, because that continues to distort or infect our thinking about these issues. So as I'm sure your listeners know, the way that we have so often through history thought about sexual assault is that it happens in an alley, the perpetrator is a stranger, there's a weapon involved, and the victim in this case fights back. She immediately reports to law enforcement, she's physically injured, there's corroborative evidence, and then the case proceeds. So. The reason that that paradigm is important is because, first, we know that most sexual assault, most gender violence doesn't resemble that at all. But when it deviates from the paradigm, we tend to have problems judging credibility. And this is where the perfect victim comes in. The perfect victim, again, fights back. Or let me even say before then, she hasn't had any contact with the perpetrator beforehand because this is a stranger. It's in an alley. So there's no contact beforehand, there's no date, there's no drinking, there's nothing between them that would suggest that she, and I'm making air quotes now, invited what happened or she welcomed it. She fights back physically really hard during the assault and she reports immediately. And when she reports, she's able to recount with precision from beginning to end a chronology that allows the person hearing to understand exactly what happened and when, and there are no gaps and there's no confusion and the story stays the same every time it's told. For so many reasons, this is not reality. This does not describe reality. And in the book, I really try to use social science to sort of show how off we are when we expect this. And yet the perfect victim continues to sort of set the standard for how all survivors should behave. And when anyone falls short in any number of ways, that will result in diminished credibility. That will lead to this kind of credibility discounting that is pervasive, that is endemic. On the other side, we have the monster abuser. And that myth also flows from the stranger rape paradigm because the idea is that abusers are so monstrous, so terrible, so so violent, so predacious that they are almost marked as deviant. And we would see them as such. They're not our neighbor. They're not our friend. They're not our coworker. There's someone so horrible that they're kind of walking around easily identified and easily understood as being a predator. And the reason that this matters is that when the person accused doesn't resemble that, when the person accused is someone who we know who has, let's say, a job or a career, maybe someone who we even revere because he's a, a public figure, then we think, no, he couldn't be. He couldn't do that. 
maybe we don't realize that we're holding this person up to that same standard of monstrosity, but we are. And it works to the detriment, to the disadvantage of the accuser. Because if she's coming forward against someone who doesn't look like a monster, and let's be honest, very, very few sexual predators look like monsters from the outside, then it's going to be harder to believe that what she's saying is true. I want to drill into a little bit more about the perfect victim or the imaginary scenario. So the stranger, first of all, most women know their accuser. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the data is clear. It's been clear for a very long time now, upwards of 80, 90 percent by many accounts. Those are cases involving family members, acquaintances, dates, spouses, romantic partners. It's not the stranger who's appearing out of nowhere from an alley or, you know, crawling in through the window. And also the reporting right away after the rape. That doesn't happen on a regular basis either. That's right. Rarely does it happen that someone who's the victim of this kind of crime, you know, goes right to law enforcement or picks up the phone and calls 911. And there are so many reasons for this. Spend just a little bit of time talking to experts in the field and you realize that, (laughs) you know, it may not make sense for that person to go right to law enforcement. And I will also say that apart from the reasons having to do with trauma, which are real. There's the credibility discount itself, which operates to keep survivors from coming forward because there is such an understanding of what typically happens when someone comes forward. You have to spend just a few minutes kind of picking up the paper or listening to the radio, watching the television, talking to your friends to know that when a woman comes forward, she is very likely to be disbelieved, to be blamed, to be treated with indifference or some combination of all of those. And so knowing that that is so likely to be the result of coming forward, it should surprise no one that the vast majority of victims of sexual assault choose not to ever report formally. Which makes me crazy to know the amount of unreported rapes. So essentially, the fact that she's not believed silences her before she even, yeah. Yeah, it's a really awful dynamic because those who do come forward, if they come forward after some time has passed, will likely have their credibility discounted because there was that delay. It's not that I'm suggesting that the only reason why victims delay or choose not to report is because they anticipate the credibility discount, but it is an important reason. And yet, when finally they do choose to come forward, they are likely to have that happen. The thing that kept them from coming forward immediately happens in the end. And it's it's really sad and it's really unjust. Kind of like a loop, <laughs> a feedback loop yeah. yes. that, that, that yes. you can't get out of. Uh, very, very frustrating to know. I want to get into two other things about the fact that all of us women, I think, know how much time and energy we spend in our lives navigating how to not get into trouble, navigating how to not end up in situations where we're sexually assaulted by a stranger or not a stranger. And the notion that you fight back 
that you're supposed to fight your assaulter. I mean, no woman I've ever known would have that as a strategy mm. because we know we're, we're weaker and it just doesn't work mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what's at play there. Like, mm. why, why is that even, is it because men think of it this way? Yeah, it's it's such an important question. I mean, we know that there are many reasons why victims may not fight back physically. And some have to do with socialization and gender socialization. And some have to do with the neurobiology of trauma and what happens when someone is in a situation where there's an, a, an immediate attack. Some of this has to do with conditioning and habits because many, many, many victims of sexual assault were abused earlier in life and often as children. And that is, you know, a dynamic that I think we're only beginning as a society to get a handle on this prevalence of childhood sexual abuse. But that can also affect the way we respond to a sexual assault. And so all of this is to say, again, that despite this widespread assumption that victims will fight back, it is more often the case that they don't, far more often the case that they don't. So why does it endure? Why does this kind of mythology endure? I will point out that the law itself reinforces the mythology, right? So you mentioned earlier a feedback loop. Well, here's another one. We have cultural misunderstandings that then get written into the law. So for instance, rape law often requires physical force, that a lot of physical force be used. And once formally required resistance on the part of the victim. And that was that was a legal requirement. You could not be recognized as a rape victim unless you fought back physically. And so once that becomes the law of rape, well, it reinforces that this is what rape looks like and this is what rape victims do. And if you don't do that, then you're not a victim of rape. And so, you know, all of these relationships between culture and law are so in need of examination and interrogation. And frankly, when we see them, we can begin to challenge them and we can begin to upend them. Regarding that too, is that maybe men or or the culture at large don't understand the calculations that women do when they are sexually attacked. Can't tell you how many times I've heard women who have experienced this who say, I cooperated because I wanted to live. I think it's also true that for some time, there's been a, a commonplace worry that if someone isn't fighting back, how will I know? And so it becomes a way of protecting an array of sort of sexual entitlement. And all of this is kind of right at the right at the core of what we might call patriarchy, this notion that there's some possessory interest and sexual interest that men have over women. And the the sort of force requirement and an insistence on resistance allows a lot of non-consensual penetration to count as lawful and maybe even acceptable in our culture. Yeah. The other thing that I thought about was the issue of corroboration. You write, and I and I never thought about it this way, that what we say happened is not evidence. 
Not in this country, at any rate. It's not considered evidence. It, you you actually have to have something additional. Mm. So in other words... Mm. <laughs> yeah, and here's another place where if we look at the law, we can see our biases. I like to think of the law in this case as holding up a mirror so that we can more clearly see <laughs> where we're going astray. So the law once imposed a unique corroboration requirement to sex crimes. And what that meant was that the testimony of an accuser without more wouldn't even reach a jury. It wouldn't even be a case that could get to deliberation. And I stress unique because I want to make clear that there there wasn't another kind of case, another kind of prosecution that required this extra corroboration. There were also jury instructions that were special in sex crimes cases. Be extra, extra cautious in this type of case because lying women are are something to be so worried about. And so you can sort of see this cluster of kind of extra protections for rape defendants, men accused of rape being built into the law. And that should be a sign that there's something about the way we think about these kinds of cases that are different and that we ought to be able to examine very closely. You can see it today, even when people use the expression, he said, she said, when that comes up, it's usually because someone is saying, I don't, I can't do anything with this allegation. I can't proceed. I can't know who to believe. I can't know what to believe. It's throwing up your hands and giving up and sort of shrugging it off. And of course, that works to the benefit of the person accused because there's no disruption of the status quo, meaning nothing changes. And I think we talk about he said, she said contests in the same way that we say there's no evidence in this case, right? If all there is, is the victim's or the accuser's word. That's another way of saying that there's something about the allegation that's different from other kinds of allegations. It doesn't even rise to the standard of evidence. Um, So there are all of these ways that within the law and outside of it, we characterize a victim's word as something that is unworthy of belief. So if you're robbed on the street, that's all you need to make a charge, correct? Yes. I wanted to talk about the abuser myths as well, Mm -hmm. and in particular about these um, pillar of community abusers Mm. like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby or some of the ones you talk about. And it almost feels like because their social capital is so high that it needed like literally hundreds of women and it took so many years of offending before it became a criminal. Yeah. I mean, I think that not only gender, but other kinds of, as you say, social capital can lead us to inflate or boost the credibility of particular men. And so we tend to confer authority uh, when they speak. We tend to, we want to believe their denials 
right? Because that's what a, a lot of this is about. There's more to it than just believing that it it didn't happen. There's also a real regard, and I'm going to say over-regard for what would happen to him if there were consequences. So I'd mentioned earlier that this isn't just about what we believe. It's also who we blame and whether we care. We care a lot about powerful men. We care about them. We are concerned about them. We want them to do well. As a culture, we orient to the pain of the powerful. The opposite is true too. We tend to really disregard and be indifferent to the pain of the powerless. But here we're talking about the men. And when you have men who are sort of particularly icons in our culture, our attachment to them is is profound. Many people feel like they know the, the movie stars, the politicians, the athletes, and we certainly revere them culturally. And so when they're subject to this kind of allegation, our protective instincts really kick in. And the notion that they would be sort of held responsible in any way for the misconduct can feel really destabilizing. It can be unsettling. What we're talking about here are these entrenched power structures. And if we're moved to act, to impose consequences, those power structures, they erode. That's something that is deeply threatening. It's easier to look the other way. Yeah. As hard as it is for a victim to come forward of any kind, like the kind of punishing experience that it turns into, no matter like what the scenario is, whether you're just in trial or whether it's, you know, Anita Hill, that no woman in their right mind would put themselves through that. And yet the false allegation myth is just so Mm. strong, like it's so widely believed that women lie about these things. And I can never square that. But you talk about the percentage of law enforcement, what they think about accusers, if you want to talk about that. Yeah. And I and I don't know that law enforcement officers are really all that different from the rest of us. Law enforcement officers have been studied. And so we have some, you know, statistics. And it's the case that law enforcement officers have a very powerful position. And because their job is to kind of process these cases, we might care a lot about how they understand the incidence of false allegations. I do want to emphasize that informal disclosures are also so important for the healing of a survivor. And so turning to a friend or family member and being dismissed is also something that we should care a lot about. That said, what we know about law enforcement officers is that many or even most, depending upon the study, think that the incidence of false allegations is very high. So upwards of 50%. Some say most, some say almost all, depending upon the particular research. And in fact, that's just way off. So there have been lots of studies of false allegations and they kind of get at different numbers, but the best figure is probably about two to six percent. And I should say the kinds of allegations that turn out to be false are really not the kind that most people assume are false. Let's put it this way. Our intuitions about false allegations are off in just about every way. We think that they happen more than they do. And we think that they're the kind of allegations that they're really not. Interesting. That makes me think about what you write about survivors' narratives, the gap between like what's expected and what they actually are. 
you were saying earlier, how we expect narratives to have in a beginning and an end with no gaps. Mm -hmm. And of course, how are they usually delivered? Yeah, I mean, this is where I think the science of trauma is instructive and what we know about how traumatic memories are encoded, stored, and retrieved explains that gaps are to be expected, nonlinear narratives, incomplete memories, all of this is par for the course. That is true across different types of trauma. The common understanding of trauma, I think, really lags behind the best available science. And so this is a place too, where if we become better informed, better aware of the effects of trauma, we may have more realistic expectations when someone comes forward and and describes an event that doesn't match up to what we think it should. Trauma-informed interviewing techniques are really important. That's something that some law enforcement departments are do better than others. But this is an example of the kinds of questions that you might ask in order to elicit the best memories. Maybe they're based on a sense that's smell or in some cases taste, that that's something that might be more helpful to the person trying to retrieve a memory than just asking, take it from the top and tell me everything that happened. Jumping over to the abuser side, our willingness to go along with their narratives is very expansive. I'm thinking about Larry Nasser, you know, yeah. where people just believe the most outlandish explanations. Yeah. And that was the word I was going to use. I mean, the Larry Nasser case files, which I dug into quite extensively for the book, are really astounding. And the notion that he was able to offer these explanations and they were taken at face value. And more than that, people who could have done something at the time proceeded as if his truth that he offered was the truth. That is not only astounding, but it's also really heartbreaking. He ended up being sentenced to quite a bit of jail time in the state of, of Michigan. He was a, a doctor who treated many, many young gymnasts, young women over the course of many years and hundreds testified at his sentencing hearing about the abuse they suffered at his hands in the the course of what he pretended was medical treatment and was in fact sexual abuse. A really awful, it just defies belief that he was able to carry on for so many years. Just incredible. You say, at its most covert, the credibility complex leads victims to elevate the perspectives and interests of their abuser above their own. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, it goes to this idea that we care deeply about those with power and we are very, very concerned for their well-being and much less so for the well-being and suffering of those who lack that kind of social power. And because this is about culture, and this is a collective problem, no one, I think, is really immune from these forces that kind of lead us to orient to the pain of the powerful. And that includes people who are hurt by the powerful. Over and over again, I have heard, and certainly those who work with survivors have heard, I didn't know if it was worth coming forward because you know I didn't know if he deserved the punishment, or if, if I, I didn't know if he should suffer any consequences for what he did. I just felt like I didn't want to do that to him. And there's this kind of 
flipping, right? Flipping of a victim and offender, which is something that people do from the outside, but also I think often survivors themselves do. And also you talk about self-doubt of just like where you literally get to the point where you just so privilege the other person's. Along each one of these dimensions. So trust, which who do we trust? Who do we blame? Who do we care about? Each one of those ways of discounting credibility can be internalized, can be taken on board. We can talk about it as gaslighting, but in the end, as you're saying, it is often the case that victims really wonder, did this happen? I've heard this from many, many, many survivors. They don't want to believe, they can hardly believe, and so they doubt themselves. They doubt their own experiences. They doubt their own truths. Self-blame is sadly commonplace. And so just as people from the outside ask the question, what did you do to bring this on? What did you do? How are you at fault? I think we all know that victims take that on board too, in many cases, and ask themselves those same questions. And then when it comes to care and concern, is it worth coming forward? Do I want to bring about consequences for him? Maybe I'm not worth it. Maybe my suffering is unimportant relative to his continued well-being, so to speak, or his ability to move forward in the world without suffering any consequences. So you take on that concern, really? All of it. All of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, this isn't just about kind of isolated incidents or individuals who are kind of ill-intentioned. This is a an enormous collective problem. This is cultural, and this is something that I think each one of us on some level should try to own. Yeah. When you come out with an accusation or something happens, there's a lot of fallout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is. And, you know, the fallout can feel very close. So I, you know, I've spoken to many who have experienced seismic changes in their friend group, the dynamics um, within families. It kind of forces a realignment of some of those circles that surround us. And then, you know, moving out beyond those inner circles, once you have, let's say, Title IX on college campuses, you've got disciplinary authorities involved, or in a workplace, you get HR involved, or law enforcement, even the state, when you get the state involved, well, then the consequences can become even more seismic and the dynamics shift in ways that are really, really powerful. Knowing that, like, so whether you are believed or not believed has huge stakes. Yes. And this is something that psychologists have studied. You might have heard the expression second rape. You may have heard about betrayal trauma. But the idea is that when someone comes forward and is dismissed for any one of these reasons, is distrusted or is blamed or is disregarded, but the allegation is dismissed, the implications of that are just enormous. And that often the harm of that is even greater than, and I have heard this from people, even greater than the abuse itself. And I think we should just pause on that because it's it's extraordinary because abuse is awful and it can have lasting consequences. And yet coming forward and having others side with the abuser rather than with the person who's come forward can be even more devastating. But I think 
at bottom, it's a question of where does the community, where does the community come out? And do you have the support of those around you or maybe even the larger community or maybe even the state or not? And if you don't, then I think it's often perceived as a an expression of devaluation, dehumanization. You're less than, you're less important than. And all of that, because it's coming from not just the abuser, but from a wider swath of, of the population, cuts so deeply. You'd give the example of Chantel Miller, who was mm-hmm. raped by Brock Turner. They went through a trial and she said, my pain was never as valuable as his potential. And that, to me, goes directly to what we've been talking about, that the result of him not being punished and her not being believed to the degree that she needed to be made her feel that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this is this is an unusual case in that it did proceed to trial. Most, as we're talking about, most sexual assaults never make their way to a courtroom. They're dismissed earlier on at the stage of policing or at the stage of prosecution. But this happened to come forward to a jury and the jury found this individual guilty of sexually assaulting Chanel Miller, who wrote a, just a powerful memoir, um, Know My Name. And when it came to the sentencing for this crime, your listeners may recall that she was unconscious at the time and bystanders intervened, which is part of the reason that the prosecution, this was in California, was able to secure a conviction. When it came time for the sentencing, remarks made by the judge at sentencing and the sentence itself, which was relatively light and certainly lighter than what individuals, including Chanel Miller, had hoped for, was the comments plus the sentence that led to this outpouring of support for her. And I think it was the victim impact statement, along with the book itself, that really brought home this idea that by prioritizing and privileging the kind of impact that this would have on the swimmer, on the man named Brock Turner, as opposed to thinking about this from the vantage of the person he had hurt, he had assaulted, the judge was essentially siding with him. And this is true, again, even after he'd been convicted. But it's a reminder that it's not only about believing that it happened, but it's about caring that it happened and being willing to impose consequences that reflect the worth of the victim, in this case, Chanel Miller. You also talk about different kinds of consequences. Obviously, in this country, there's a debate about punishment. And there's been a trend, would you say that's fair, uh, towards sort of restorative justice, community-based justices, because we as a country are so tired of mass incarceration and too many people in jail. Sure. I think this was a difficult part of the book to write because there's such a range of views when you talk to survivors about what counts as a meaningful consequence. And I really wanted to honor the voices of survivors and center them in this book. And so ultimately, I wanted to portray the range of what I was hearing. And so for many survivors, 
a state response and a criminal response in particular was what was wanted, what was maybe even needed, that kind of validation and vindication, that expression of the community that this was wrong was hugely important and a necessary component of, frankly, healing. And so for those individuals, um, having the police and the prosecution respond fairly and to take it seriously and to move the case forward, and maybe even at the end to have the individual incarcerated, that's what felt like a meaningful consequence. For others who had been sexually assaulted, that wasn't desired. And as you mentioned, there's been a turn, a greater turn to restorative justice processes. And, you know, briefly, the idea of restorative justice process is that it brings the survivor and the offender and impacted community members into conversation with one another with an eye toward healing, with an eye toward education, with an eye toward moving forward in whatever way it takes so that the survivor is restored, which is why it's called restorative justice, to a position that's close to where she was before this happened. I try to present restorative justice when it works really well and what that looks like. And I kind of go through a case study involving two high school students and what it is to engage in a restorative justice process and then why at the end of it, the young woman felt as if she'd been empowered. Because I think when it works, that's the idea. She felt empowered. She felt heard. This is not a situation where there's any dispute about what happened. It only works if the offender is willing to take responsibility, to offer an apology. And so for this young woman, the process worked really, really well. And yet it doesn't always. And I want to be sort of cautious and qualified in suggesting that restorative justice is always going to be the way forward. I don't think it is. For many survivors, that's not what they're looking for. And in particular, in an institution where there's a history of minimizing and sort of tolerating sexual abuse, it can be really difficult for a restorative justice process to seem genuine or to feel like it's doing anything other than kind of sweeping this problem under the rug. I'm curious about the function of punishment, like why or how it makes us whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you do go into that, which I think is such an interesting conversation. Yeah. I mean, so expressive theories of punishment look at the message that punishment sends. And that seems to correspond really well to how survivors understand the purpose of punishing someone. It tends not to be vindictive or sort of vengeful but rather to be a way of measuring whether someone's suffering counts. It's not the only way of doing that, but punishment can be seen as kind of equalizing the status of a victim and an offender. So if, particularly with a sex crime, the offender is acting in a way that subordinates the interests and the personhood, the humanity of the victim, punishment as an expression of the community can do something to kind of restore the right equilibrium that can empower a victim and can be viewed as a statement that this was so wrong that we're willing to impose a meaningful consequence, which might be incarceration even. But it's again, not with an eye toward making the perpetrator suffer for the sake of suffering, 
but rather to convey in no uncertain terms that this is unacceptable and that the victim should not have been subjected to that violent act or that sexually violent act. You have a quote that says, when the state punishes, it is a crucial expression of solidarity with the victim. And I think along those same lines, exactly that, that society basically say, you couldn't protect yourself, but we protect you or we have solidarity with you. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of the opposite of what we talked about earlier with regard to institutional betrayal and the feeling that the community is siding with the perpetrator by doing nothing. This is not that. This is to say, we are aligning ourselves with you, recognizing the harm, recognizing the wrong and doing something about it to turn around this power imbalance and to put you back in the place that you deserve to be, which is as an equal. I wanted to jump over to a different subject matter, which is related, but different. And it's kind of focused on a paper you wrote some years ago. It discusses a problem that has yet to be resolved for sure that exists in domestic violence law. And I don't want to be overly dramatic, but women or victims of domestic violence are, I think, losing their lives on account of this gap in understanding. And I just think it gets at something that for some reason, we just don't talk about. And when you lay it out the way you do, it is so clear. Mm, Thank you. I appreciate that. Our laws, our criminal laws against domestic violence haven't really changed to reflect the realities of domestic violence. And so what we've done as a matter of course, is to take the laws that prohibit, let's say, a barroom assault between strangers. We're talking about a stranger paradigm again here. And we take those laws and we say, add relationship, and that's domestic violence. Domestic violence is just like a barroom assault, except the people have an intimate relationship between them. When, as you know, that is far, far from the case. Domestic violence involves, at its core, power and control. It is an ongoing relationship of power and control. It absolutely can involve physical incidents of violence, but it's not just that. It involves all sorts of ways in which power and control can be manifested. There's verbal abuse, and there's sexual abuse, and there are threats, and there's degrading behavior, And so what the criminal law misses when it applies these laws that look at just, uh, let's say, a snapshot in time. If I took a picture, what would I capture? Rather than an ongoing, expansive lens that that considers all of these dynamics. Well, the, the criminal law is missing the essence of domestic violence. It's missing what lies at its heart. It's missing what is often experienced as the worst aspects of it. And it's saying all of that is is off limits. We're not going to get at that. We just want to know what happened on this narrow occasion, this one time when there was a physical assault. And so that's kind of the, the heart of the problem. And I think it's so interesting, the breakup, that the breakup is the thing 
that makes it a crime. Yeah. Right. So, so to understand why the breakup is significant, we have to add into the conversation stalking and the idea of stalking. Because I think people are very familiar with the idea of stalking as an ongoing course of conduct characterized by fear, power, maybe control. And so we see that when it comes to what we're going to call stalking. And we actually have laws against stalking that adopt this far more expansive understanding of what the crime is. But we have a harder time seeing that when someone is still in, in air quotes, the relationship. So the breakup becomes socially significant and maybe even legally significant, even though there is no reason for that to be the case. We ask questions about the status of a relationship that should have nothing to do with whether we care about non-physical manifestations of power. And just so ironic because the question about leaving becomes so central. It's the only thing people focus on mm-hmm. is leaving the relationship when mm-hmm. anyone who's been in an abusive relationship knows that it's a continuum. Right. So, I mean, even asking the question, is the relationship over? Did it end? It's so artificial. It is so disconnected from the realities of, as you're saying, particularly abusive relationships where there's an, you know, often a protracted and exceedingly difficult process of quote unquote leaving. Yeah. Obviously, if you were coerced in the relationship or under control in the relationship, Mm -hmm. you're not going to all of a sudden not be controlled and coerced. No. And it turns out that efforts to leave are so hard and they're so dangerous. It's something that the legal scholar Martha Mahoney has called separation assault. And it's the idea that when a person who's in an abusive relationship is attempting to extricate herself from that relationship, she is most vulnerable. Separation sparks the shift in crime paradigms because separation marks the moment of non-consent. Non-consent to the relationship and thus non-consent to relationship violence. Mm -hmm. If you can talk about the assumptions that are baked into that Mm -hmm. statement. I think it goes back to part of our earlier conversation about blame and care. And so the idea is if you are unable to get yourself out of this situation, then you deserve what's coming to you. And it's not something that I think people would articulate in just that way. But I think at bottom... That's part of why the question, why didn't she leave, right? Because if you didn't, then the abuse is partly your fault and we're not going to be moved to do anything about it. And so this is another way in which the breakup assumes this monumental importance in the way that we think about domestic violence. These are such difficult and sad and maddening yeah. issues to be talking about. But yet I know you you and I both share the sense that the only way this changes is if we kind of really understand what we're up against. That's how we decide that we're going to attack these structures and change these laws and rework our assumptions Thank you so very much for sharing all of your thoughts with me. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. <laughs>